We're in the home stretch of Romans chapter 8, and today we're just going to cover three verses. Um, Romans 8:28 we finished with last week, but we're going to start with it today and go through verse 30. But before we do that, I want to rewind just a bit. There's a phrase that happens every once in a while, quite a bit actually, through the first eight chapters of Romans, and it's this phrase, we know. It's like Paul is saying, here's what we know. Here's what you ought to know. Here's what people don't know. We know, we know these things. So what do we know? So far, what do we know? And here's just a few. Chapter 2, verse 2. Chapter 1 and 2 outline the bad news that's found. And chapter 2, verse 2 says, We know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. And you can look in the context to see what those things are. Chapter 2, verse 18 says, You know what he wants. You know what is right because you've been taught his law. And the first part of chapter 3 outlines the fact that there's nobody who does good, not even one. And verse 17 says they don't know where to find peace. But then there's good news. In chapter 3, verse 21, it starts to, starts to talk about what the good news is. There's a righteousness apart from the law that's been made known through faith, a righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ to all who believe. And this starts to outline and talk about the good news that is redemption by the atonement of Christ, the sacrifice that he gave through his blood. As a result of this, what do we know? Well, chapter 5, verse 3 to 5 says we can rejoice when we have problems and disappointments and trials because we know they help us develop endurance. And this doesn't lead to disappointment. We know How dearly God loves us. Chapter 6, verse 6. We know that our old sinful lives were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. Later on in verse 8. Since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We're sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead. And he will never die again. Death no longer has mastery or power over him. Chapter 7, verse 18, Paul's big argument with himself about how he wants to do good, but he can't. This is, this is what he says, I know nothing good lives in me. That is my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. And then chapter 8, there are two times where this phrase happens. Verse 22, we talked about a couple weeks ago, we know that all creation has been groaning up to the present time, as in the, cha- as in the pains of childbirth. We know this. And verse 28, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things work together for the good of those who love God. What are all things? Well, in the context of this chapter, in the rest of the first part of Romans, all things, all the prayers, all the weakness, all the groanings, all the waiting, all the suffering, all the struggle with sin and temptation and the passing from death to life, the very act of Jesus giving his life on the cross, the worst kind of death imaginable, the worst tragedy for his friends and his disciples, all that kind of thing worked together, ultimately setting us free from the law of sin and death. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Now listen, this is a wide-angle lens through history, but it's all things. I, I know sometimes we drill down into our present circumstance that God uses all things together for the good of those who love him. So I've had a bad week, or I lost my keys, or I'm dealing with a health struggle, and I know God can use all things for the good of those who love him. And that's that's true. It's, it's not to say that we can't apply that verse to our present circumstance, our present trials, but in the context, I think a long view is primary so that we can understand our own short, our own short view, just the things we have around us, our everyday lives. Ultimately, though, what is the good that God wants to accomplish in those who love Him? What do all things work together for good? What is this good? Well, I think the next verse tells us He wants us to be like Jesus. I don't think this is too simplistic. I think by faith in his blood, we've been set free from the law of sin and death, and we are known, we've been called, we're forgiven, we've been justified, and like Christ, in varying degrees, by increasing glory, we, we all are glorified. And that's the progression in verse 30. Here's 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. I want to read a paragraph from um, author and theologian N.T. Wright. And he talks about the Gospel of John, verse 21, when Peter is coming to contact with the resurrected Jesus. And Peter has this conversation with Christ. Maybe you're familiar with it. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. This is what N.T. Wright is speaking of at first. He said, we find a graphic personal outworking of Paul's theme, those whom he justified, he also glorified. In John 21, Jesus meets Peter on the shore after Peter's disastrous denial. Three times, Jesus asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Three times, Peter answers with a tentative yes. The narrative then cries out for a word of forgiveness, but Jesus gives a word of commission, feed my sheep, then a word of warning, follow me. All the way to the cross, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those to whom he gives the word of free forgiveness, to them he also gives the commission to join him in his costly work, to come when he calls, to go where he sends, to do what he tells you. The word of forgiveness and the word of call and of commission regularly come together. We are not forgiven in order to sit back and do nothing. We are justified in order that we also may be glorified. See, I think God didn't send Jesus to save us from death alone. He also came to give us life. Life here and life hereafter. As he intended to give life to the first humans, life and purpose and work and fulfillment, not a permanent vacation, but a vocation. Something to do to work the ground to take care of creation. We're made in the image of God. 
I mean, think Genesis 1. Male and female, he created them. In his image, they were created. And we need to be changed. We need to be conformed. We need to be conformed to the image of his Son. When you see the word image, you need to think back to Genesis. They were created in his image. We need to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Why? Because we're marred by sin. We're stained by death. And we need to be conformed into life by faith in him and his atoning sacrifice on the cross. This is the greatest good that God does for those who love him. We need changed from sin and decay. That, as he says in, later on in, in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, to be conformed by, re, by the renewal of our minds. So this isn't the only place that Scripture speaks of this image-bearing business. Three times Paul talks about this. In Romans 1, he talks about those who reject God's image for themselves. And he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, they rejected the image of God in themselves they were, and, and went after other images. They made themselves into the images of other things and followed them. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, Paul leverages this image talk and in in, in the reasoning for behavior modification. He says, don't lie to each other. You've put off the old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self, which is being made new in knowledge after the image of its creator. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul says, all of us who have had that veil removed and can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. Think sun versus moon. The sun makes light, the moon reflects the light. We reflect the glory of the Lord. We bear his image. And he says, And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. The great apologist and author, Ravi Zacharias, just passed away this last week. And uh, I remember seeing a teaching of his on video once, and he talks about those people that came to Jesus in order to trick him. They said, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Thinking, well, if he says they should, then the Jewish people would call him a traitor. And if he says, well, you should not, then they'll tattle on the Romans and get Jesus in trouble. And what does Jesus say? He says, bring me a coin. So they bring him a coin, and he asks the question, whose image is on this coin? Whose inscription? And they say, well, it's Caesar. And Jesus says that famous line, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. What is on the image of this coin belongs to Caesar. It's in his image. But give to God what belongs to God. And the question nobody asked was, then what should we give to God? And the answer would have been Jesus saying, well, whose image is on you? That was Ravi's point. 
Whose image do you bear? Who are you paying? Because what image do you follow? Whose image is on you? This short section of scripture is packed with lots of churchy words, vocabulary that have been fought over, frankly, uh, in, Christ in Christianity for the last, well, probably 500 years since the reformers began to understand the scriptures in different ways and having different dialogue and, and banter um, and debate about things like foreknowledge and predestination and justification. I'm not going to get into the theological deep weeds of this. For one, I'm not smart enough. And two, we don't have time. Um, other than to say, those whom he foreknew, in verse 29, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And I just want to give just a really quick illustration of what I think foreknowledge really means in this passage. If we have a timeline that is like my math teacher used to do, the x-axis from eternity past to eternity future. And let's just say you are here. This is our present point in time, this dot right here. Well, we only know this moment. We don't know anything in the future, and we can only reflect on the past only a certain amount based on our own experience and flawed memories. But God, in his omniscience, which means he's all-knowing, and his omnipotence, which means he's all-powerful, is in what I heard Tony Campolo talk about, God is the eternal now. Whereas God is not at any one point in history just there. He is over all of this. He is outside of time. And he sees everything as one big eternal now. Which is why the book of Hebrews can talk about Christ died for sins once for all. If the cross happened at one point in time, how did it provide atonement and sacrifice and forgiveness for all of the sins ever committed? Well, because God is outside of time. And he sees all of time, all at once. And he sees every individual, and all they will ever do or say, all at once. So there's a difference between having foreknowledge and being a omnidetermineer, meaning that he knows everything, he doesn't determine everything. Just to be, just to because he has foreknowledge doesn't mean he, that there is no free will to choose Christ or not. He knows whom will choose him. And he's chosen several people throughout, um, throughout history and quite a bit through the scriptures. I'm more of a free will kind of guy when it comes to the debate between predestination and free will between Calvinists and Arminians, there is, a, there is a middle ground. But again, 
theological deep weeds. We are chosen, we are called to be conformed into the image of Christ. It's clear, like I said, that God has chosen specific people for specific reasons, specific times, specific purposes. Think back to Genesis 12, God's call to Abram. Go to the land I will show you. You'll be the father of great nations. I will bless you. You'll be a blessing. Whoever curses you, I will curse. All the nations of the earth will be blessed because of you, Abram. And Abram was credited as having that, that faith that followed and obeyed. God chose Isaac over Ishmael. God chose Jacob over Esau, even though he was the younger as well as Jacob's son Joseph had boys, and Jacob chose Ephraim over Manasseh. You could keep going. He chose David over his older brothers. God chose the nation of Israel to be a vehicle to bless the whole world. By choosing an individual person or a nation for a single purpose doesn't mean that God rejects everyone else, that he has a list of people he saves and a list of people he doesn't save. No, there, are, there is a list of people that will be saved because he knows they'll be saved. But those people choose their salvation by faith in Christ and follow Jesus. It's clear that not all people will believe. But God wants, and 2 Timothy says, God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Christ is the ransom for all people. And he wants none to perish. 2 Peter 3, he wants none to perish, but all to come to repentance. And it's clear that not everyone will. But those who respond to the call, there is justification. And those who are justified are also glorified. What does it mean to be glorified. Well, in almost every instance where the word glorify or glorified happens, it's God who's being praised. God is the one who's honored, and he's the one that's exalted. But here, it is God glorifying us. Notice that God is the one doing everything. God is the one who foreknows. God's the one who predestines. He's the one who calls. God's the one who justifies. He's the one who glorifies. This is all God's work. Not by our works that any person should boast. And there is a sense, and Jesus even alludes to it, that we are glorified because we're in him. We share in his glory, provided we also share in his sufferings. Glorification for us will certainly come in the new creation where the poor in spirit will take possession of the kingdom of heaven, where the meek will inherit the earth, and these two things will be one and the same, as Paul says elsewhere, the renewal of all things. But glorification is happening now. Glorification is happening now in Jesus' people, through us, as we bear his image to the world, as we reflect the glory of God to a hurting, dark, broken world. That's Jesus being glorified in us. You've heard the saying, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. I think it's true. Everybody wants to be glorified, but very few truly grasp that glorification comes 
from being justified by faith, which comes from answering the call of God to follow Jesus and obey all he's commanded us. Here's the challenge. Here's the challenge of Romans 8.28. God working all things together for the good of those who love him. It's not just a vehicle to justify pain or tragedy, as in everything's going to turn out okay. It's not just a justification for trouble or inconvenience in your everyday life that God will work all things out today for your good. That may be true, but I believe the primary goal and meaning for Romans 8.28 is Romans 8.29. See God's greatest good for you as God seeing you, God knowing you, and working hard, and you responding in faith to make you more and more and more in the character, the likeness, and the mission, and the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. God's greatest good for you is to be like Jesus. He's justified you. It's just as if you'd never sinned. And he is being glorified in you because of that. And we can look forward one day to the glorification of all things in the new heaven and the new earth. I hope this has been helpful. It's been a tough text for me. We look forward to um, the later on in the chapter where in two weeks we come back together and we can celebrate that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. But for today, just pray that the greatest good that God does for you is that he makes you more and more like Jesus.